0: Do you have more pictures of your goats than yourself on your phone? Does your vacation time get spent attending goat shows? Can you have a conversation without bringing up dairy goats? Neither can we. So join us as we talk to the country's best breeders, judges, appraisers, and industry experts about all things dairy goats. We are John Kane and Danielle Coroli. Welcome to Ringside, an American Dairy Goat Podcast. This episode of Ringside is brought to you by The Great Goat. Show season is right around the corner, and with that, nice weather. When I think of nice weather, I think of barbecuing, smoking some meat, cooking outside, having a good time why not add some nice rubs spices barbecue sauces from the great goat today if you use the code ringside10 at www.greatgoatbbq.com you will be able to receive 10% off your order and that sounds just like a wonderful idea so for those great meals at shows or prepping for shows or just a regular Sunday, think of the great goat and make your order today again that's www.greatgoatbbq.com now on to the show What's up, everyone, and welcome to Ringside. I'm John, and I'm joined by Santa's little helper again, Danielle Caroli.
1: You make me sound so unfestive, but I guess we should say Merry Christmas to all, and we hope you all had a wonderful holiday. And look at that. I'm the one wishing them all Merry Christmas, John.
0: Well, I, of course, ladies first. Merry Christmas, everybody. I hope you had a wonderful time with your friends and family. Uh, Yeah, it it was a great holiday, but now we're going to continue the holiday by discussing part two of Culling with Grace Toy and Dr. Kurt Schnifke. Welcome back to the show, guys.
2: Thank you. We're happy to be here.
3: Yeah, I'm glad we didn't, you know, scare you guys off yet.
1: I feel like you can now officially add ringside podcast regular to your resume, your Instagram bio, whatever kind of, um, you know, thing you want to add. I feel like you now, both of you are now officially regulars, I guess would be the correct term, reoccurring guest stars. Um, But we're so grateful to have both of you here again.
2: I'll be sure to thank you when I get my Emmy nomination or radio broadcasting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: please do. I think the real question is going to be if Danielle ever got a Christmas tree in time for Christmas. Yes, well,
1: <laughs> I don't to be determined, and I'm sure I will have a beautiful Christmas tree picture to
3: share with everyone. <laughs> when that time comes <laughs> We'll be waiting for the selfie or the tiktok From you Ugh.
1: Yeah that would be A Christmas miracle
0: That would be a Christmas miracle The gift that just keeps on giving I tell you, uh, Spoiler alert folks uh, We're pre-Christmas right now It's currently December 15th And yes like many people in the country I am still breeding goats
1: Oh we're gonna go there now
0: we are, I am so mad at this goat now, after discussing it with my I guess mega mind hive of friends here uh we're gonna try some stuff with her, but yeah, Mary Mack came back and he and when I messaged this to you, you said welcome to the club, so you're breeding goats today on December fifteenth as well
1: no, I Went to my vet because as we talked about several weeks ago, I had a jailbreak and I thought I had enough estromate to give the doe who I did not want to get pregnant her shot to make sure that she didn't take. And I'm pretty sure she came into heat because we're just at like 23 days or so. And I'm pretty sure I saw her in heat, but just in case, because I really, she's an older girl, she's retired, she doesn't need to carry these babies, so I ran out to the vet and got a shot of Mate for her. But in the process, my vet and I were talking, and I do have a doe who I had to breed twice this year so far, and knock on wood, the second time took, but... If it doesn't take, my vet and I are going to have a little meetup right around Christmas time, and I'm going to get her some hormones to just hopefully make it all work and get her bread. So we tried a different buck this time. We tried different times in her cycle. So fingers crossed that worked, and then otherwise we'll use a little hormonal assistance and see what happens. But, you know it's all good. We'll get
3: her bread.
0: Grace and Kurt, are you guys done?
2: I just bred two more goats two days ago and I have one or two more kids to breed. So you are not alone breeding goats right now.
3: <laughs> yeah. Starting with the good news first, just to brag a little bit. No, I just confirmed almost everybody bred. I've did our last group of ultrasounds, but I have a handful of does I need to scan and my trouble does that we all seem to be having this year are of course the more important ones that I do want to show and get on milk test again next year. So I'm crossing my fingers. They don't recycle, but we'll we'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks.
0: Knocking on wood for you. Well guys, Merry Christmas. We're not going to do ad good news this week. We are going to continue culling and how to do it effectively and i feel like last week's episode was a little bit more of a broader aspect although we got certainly deep into it this week we're going to get even more comprehensive and we left off with uh calling kids uh we started touching on yearlings and uh, you know milking yearlings and first fresheners um so let's kind of just retouch on that real quick uh do you guys give a little bit more leeway for your first fresheners or are you uh, pretty hard nosed with them as well? And we'll start with Grace.
3: Uh, I think it kind of depends for me and I'm trying not to repeat what I said last time, but um, a, I'm a big person who's, you have to know your genetics and how they develop. And that includes going back and looking at pictures of that damn line and um, the female relatives and seeing how they matured and. Um, sometimes giving them a little bit of grace if it's a trend that seems to be something they grow out of in that line. Um, I do again just with needing milk to feed kids and everything. I do have, have the opportunity to keep them a little bit longer, um, like at least a month or so. Sometimes closer to 60 days, um, depending on how many does I have at that point in milk. Um, so I just kind of give them a chance to come into milk a little bit and see if you know the outer floor is going to change or just kind of see if the four outer. Um, changes a little bit, maybe add a little bit more width of your udder as they start to come more into milk. Because um, my my line I've noticed, well, some people get, you know, really excited because their does have all this capacity when they freshen and then it kind of goes back. Mine tend to be the opposite where they go into the lactation a little bit slower, um, which is nice because I don't deal with um, many issues and, you know, over-uddering when mm-hmm. they're first fresheners, but it kind of gives them a chance to really come into themselves. So those first couple of weeks are pretty important. In that
2: decision, yeah, I um, I uh, have a, about a three week grace period that I give all of the first fresheners. So I try not to make any um, permanent decisions, meaning culling decisions, uh, within that first three weeks. After three weeks, I kind of reevaluate and reassess um, and look at, you know, has either the capacity improved or the teat placement improved or, you know, the length of the foreutter or the fullness of the fore, you know, all, all those wonderful traits that we are looking for. Um, I, I reassess at the, um, the three week point and then try to, you know, look at it myself and go, okay, do I think that she needs another two to three weeks or do I think that this just really isn't going to get a whole lot better? And, and a lot of that, again, does come down to knowing the, the genetic base that you're working with. Um, I have a, a couple different um, families that, yes, they're all related if you go back far enough to the same two uh, basic dough lines, but um, a couple of them, they come in rocking and rolling right out right out of the gate. They're just ready to go. And even as first fresheners, they do well, they get their milk stars, they're fine. um, And more than get their milk stars. Um, And then I have a couple other ones from a slightly different family where um, they may not get their milk star as a first freshener. And I'm okay with that knowing that, you know, their dam and their grand dam um, did not get their milk star as a first freshener either. Um, and, and that of course is dependent on when they freshen as well. You know, if you have your first fresheners freshening in April and May, it can be a little bit tougher when you dry everything up towards the end of November or early December, and you don't do a full three Oh five on them. Um, but for me anyways, um, those families, it just come, it comes down to, if I'm not looking at productivity necessarily as a culling decision, then they have to have, all of the other traits that I'm looking for as far as sound mammary system, you know, attachment and shape. Um, and it has to all be there, just not the, the productivity. Um, and then certainly looking at, at body and structure traits as well. But um, personality is a big one. And, and again, for me, it doesn't matter how pretty the goat is. If the personality is, is not working, then she's going to go. Um, and then it just depends on, you know, if she's, if she has a bad personality, but you know, could be a show goat for somebody, I'll find a show home for her. If she has a bad personality and maybe a trade or two that I don't necessarily want in the gene pool, then I have a, usually a, um, I'm going to steal a quote from one of my friends farm, beautifi- farm beautification day, meaning we load up the trailer and they go to the Amish sale barn and instantly the herd gets a little bit more beautiful. So <laughs>
3: And I think it's important just because I think we all need this reminder is you kind of have to take into account, okay, if this is a yearling or, a, a you know, more mature two year old that had triplets, she might have the capacity of the utter and there might be some differences there, but you kind of have to give them a little bit more time to get that body back. Especially I found just having sonnins and yearling milkers that like to have triplets consistently that I kind of have to, you know, not look at some things and give them another year or two in some cases when the mammary system's there and the pieces are there, but they kind of have to pull it back together a little bit. Um, and the same goes, I've had does and I purchased a dough in a similar situation that turned out really well, that if they only have a single and they're a bigger dough, I really just want to see those pieces of the mammary system and that the, the structure is still there. But I want to see, you know, the outer floor and the teak placement, and they should have a really nice attachment overall. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of give those does little bit of extra time to see and in a lot of cases if i really have a strong feeling about them they're going to get that extra lactation because you kind of have to look past some things and you know again just know your genetics and i just want to say personality after having to um, get rid of all but one daughter of a really nice buck and they were all lovely but I can't deal with a bunch of milkers that want to kick constantly when you're trying to milk them and they're trying to like jump up and everything. So there is definitely a genetic component there. And if they don't have the manners, they really don't have a place on the milking line.
1: No, I couldn't agree more. And I think with my herd in theory, and obviously goats change over time, but I want the, when I'm looking at my does, the kids and the yearlings, I'm really focusing on that general appearance. I want them to be correct I want them to look nice. And then that first freshening year is that unknown. Is that mammary system going to be placed where I want it? Is it going to have the rear udder height and width I want, the smoothness of blending into that foreudder the teat placement? When I'm looking at my first fresheners, like you both said, productivity doesn't necessarily matter as much to me. I often have first fresheners who have a single and I know that they're not going to put in as much milk as they would if they had twins or triplets, especially that first year. And so while I want them to milk enough to make it worthwhile to milk them, and I have my standard in my herd of what that baseline single kid, what I would expect from that dough, and I want them to reach that, I don't necessarily expect them to be really strong, productive members of the herd. I want to see the structure of that mammary system because that's the unknown as they're a first freshener. And then the other thing I kind of let them take some time with, and again, this goes back to knowing my lines, that body capacity... They're going to be tubey. They're not going to show a lot of depth into that barrel. And just because I know that that'll come in time with my lines. I have a few does who really looked great when they were five, six, seven, and that was when they shone. And so I know that plays a part in the, what this potential is on that first freshener. But I think for me, you kind of figure, going in, at least the general appearance is going to be similar enough, hopefully. Otherwise, again, that's a doe that maybe goes for if the general appearance starts to go. But you've seen that as that kid, as that yearling, um, if it's a dry yearling and you're not breeding her to be a milking yearling. And so that first freshening, it's the structure of the mammary system. And then I think that second freshening is where it really... Push comes to shove at that point, and you're either seeing what you want to see or she's going. Would you guys agree on that? Or what is kind of that ultimate, this is where the dough is going to be, here she's staying, or meh, she didn't turn out completely like what I would like as an older doe? What kind of timeline do you guys look at for that?
2: Well, for me, I keep anywhere between 8 and 10 kids every year and keeping in mind some, some years that's, uh, most years that's two breeds with having Sonans as well. Um, and then occasionally, um, I'll have the, the occasional grade born as well, um, either grade or experimental. And so, um, depending on, I usually don't keep more than two son and kids and not more than one grade or experimental kid just because the more of those that I keep the the fewer of my my bread and butter the oberhasley that I can keep so I have to kind of keep that in perspective as well but um, if we take an average of about eight kids I'll freshen um, two or three of those as yearling milkers. Um, depending on what family they're from. I have a couple families that they need that extra year to grow up and they need to be dry yearlings. And I've learned that over time. And and so I allow them to be dry yearlings. And then the other ones that I know that can handle being milking yearlings, uh, I'll go ahead and breed those and kind of figure out what is going on with the mammary system a year earlier. Um, And sometimes that's to prove out what is a certain dam doing, but more often it's to kind of prove out what is a certain sire doing, or at least getting a quick glimpse of, you know, one or two of his daughters to see if, if he improved what I was hoping he would. Um, and, and so usually by the time they're two, uh, whether they're first fresheners or second fresheners at two years old, I normally get that whittled down to four or five. Um, and certain years I whittle it down even further than that. If I can see certain things that, um, you know, some of those goats are still show goats. They're just not going to be able to beat a certain doe, you know, in that age group or a certain set of does. Um, an example of that last year as two year olds, uh, one of one of my more competitive does. I she is not my favorite and I don't call her my favorite. Um, but um, if anybody knows my doe Valkyrie, um, she was this year's best uttered Oberhusley at the national show. But even last year as a two-year-old, I freshened her for the second time and and I was seeing the improvements that I wanted to see. And um, I freshened a couple other first fresheners that I thought they're nice, but they're never, ever going to beat Valkyrie. And so that was a year where I said, I can sell this class down to a few less than what I normally would. Um, And in comparison, my three year olds last year I kept five because they were all really nice and I and I liked traits and things about all five of them. So I kind of play with the numbers there a little bit. And again, it's all about getting back down to that that overall number and and trying to cut out that bottom one third. And so sometimes that plays out as, you know, as a yearling that, that goes, sometimes it plays out as a two year old. Um, Sometimes it's a first freshener, sometimes it's a multiple time freshener, but I try to have most of the culling decisions done at least by the time they're three years old. And so um, you know then they can I can start to just allow them to mature each year and see what they're doing in a in a um, additional maturing pattern from year to year and productivity and that type of a thing. Yeah, kind of just.
3: Taking on a few things you said, I think the biggest thing to realize with my herd is I kind of essentially when I'm going to make cuts to the herd, it just has to be around my timing when I can move animals, when I can advertise animals, whatever it may be. Um, That's really when I start to make my cuts. So when it comes to junior does, I keep more than I want. Um, I think we're going to be cutting a lot harder this year just because of my schedule and having to be away from home a little bit more. Um, but I usually, you know, I keep kids primarily on the genetic value. And, you know, you can only see so much from a young kid. So there's going to be a few extra in the pen that the more I watch them, the more it's like, okay, you're really not fitting the picture of the rest of these does and you're standing out in not a good way. Um, so usually I kind of make one cut of the kids. And the other thing is, you know, my own herd goals, I, I have to keep in mind of, okay, yes, she may be competitive but is she going to bring my herd anywhere? Because, um, you know, my, my goal isn't, I don't really get a lot of time to show. Um, my biggest thing is I like to score the goats. I like to have them on test. And I'm always kind of thinking 10 years down the road, is she going to bring me a step closer to where I want to be? Um, so as I get older, I haven't freshened as many yearlings as I like. So I might make another cut really just on type um, and looking for those differences. But once it gets you know, to the milkers and everything, Usually it cuts down pretty fast. Like right now, my group of um, up and coming three-year-olds, I think I started with five son and does from the time they were dry yearlings, I got it down to. And right now we're going to freshen three. And I already have one. I know that I want a doe kid from her just to keep the um, genetics because I don't have much of that line left. And there's a lot of really good pieces. But what is the point in keeping her when I have a pretty standout coming three-year-old that nobody is really touching. And then I have that one doe that Danielle was kind of saying that she's a beautiful milking yearling. She has all the pieces. She's long bone pattern. She has this lovely mammary system, but she keeps having triplets and she's almost just too productive for her frame right now. And she's the doe that in the back of my mind, I'm like, that's going to be the five or six year old that really pulls it together. When I just kind of, we've been slowing down her production the past two years, which I don't like to have to baby goats, but I keep sitting there, you know, we co-own a son of hers. I have a lot of confidence in these genetics. So I'm going to give her the chance to catch up because I did freshen her as a younger yearling and she's freshened every year since with giant triplets that she's, you know, had on her own and she's done everything beautifully. She just, her body kind of has, needs that time. So, you know, it's, it's again, knowing your genetics, it's really looking at them. And at the end of the day, it's okay. How many goats do I have and how many do I need to cut? kind of figure out you know where number wise I need to be I may need to be looking at things with a more critical eye than other times so hopefully that kind of answered it because we kind of had a few
0: (laughs) oh yeah well and you were mentioning some characteristics there have you uh found that there are characteristics that get better and uh are there others that you know will only get worse with time when you're looking at a dough that you're considering calling
3: I think we'll both immediately probably say um, is just attachment of the mammary system. If they don't have the area of attachment, it's not, the rear udder isn't high into the escutcheon. Um, That's, you know, you could fill it more to fill it into the escutcheon where it looks good. But I have an expectation of, again, I don't get to show very much. I expect them to look good at 12 hours, every single milking, you know, that should be an udder that I am very happy with. I can score them on that udder. Um, so it's, it's things like that, that, you know, the area of attachment, you can even start to see it in some of your younger does. Like we're talking about teeth placement. That's something I do kind of look at with my juniors. Um, but you know, there's things when you talk about the mammary system specifically like foreudder I need to see the width and the extension, but sometimes with how the body changes a little bit, the overall attachment, um, that can change. So you know, obviously I don't want a pocket. I don't want an inverted foretter, but I want to see that, okay, maybe when she gets a little bit more depth of body, this is going to pull together, especially on the yearlings that are just kind of too big and all over the place. Um, But structurally, I'm a really big rump person. They need to have good thorough um, placement. They need to have wide rumps wide across their loin and back. I love level top lines and good strength of feet and legs. And um, the thing I tell people is, that was even when I started in 4-H, the biggest thing I've ever worked on is general appearance in my Nubians, especially. So when people kind of comment that, oh, that Nubian has the most level top line, it's like, yeah, because every single doe in my barn does because they don't survive. Even though that levelness can change a little bit, I want to see the structures there. And, you know, you give that awkward two-year-old or yearling a little bit of a pass if she's just slightly high at the hips sometimes. And same with you know, horses, they're going to grow a little bit differently. And sometimes that hip is just kind of ahead of the rest of them. Um, And, you know, that rear leg is just a little bit longer, or legs overall. But, you know, it's those little things, seeing your own genetics as far as dairy strength. I know that sometimes I have pudgy yearlings or two-year-olds that will kind of come out of that as they get older and aren't the most um, pretty to look at as younger does, that they just need to milk some of that weight off. So it's knowing that certain lines have the ability to do that where a lot of Nubians especially don't um, and things like that, that I kind of keep in um, mind when choosing.
1: On that idea of dairy strength, are you talking more that you're seeing does with excess weight or is it that some of the other aspects of dairy strength aren't there as well? Are you seeing short necks or are you seeing like fat necks? And then are you seeing the correct angle in the ribs angulation throughout? Are you see, is it hidden and they have to unlock it? Or are you seeing kind of poor dairy? Sh- is it weight or is it poor dairy strength?
3: I guess is. No, weight. Yep. No, I get what you're saying. So, I mean, the thing is you have to keep in mind, I mean, does that don't have the angularity, they, they're not flat boned. They're not um, open in the rib. You're not seeing, you know, the angularity in the rear leg. Typically a lot of those does that are just very straight throughout, they don't milk um and even though you hold on to some people hold on to them and everything but people don't like her because she's not dairy it's all right well as you know when you look at her production is that really correlating that she's not producing so i'm still i want to see the shape and the openness mm-hmm. of rib i want to see um, that there's angularity throughout but sometimes it can definitely be masked um like i'll say my dough that a lot of people know is wisteria who's the black dough with the white band. She was the ugliest looking kid in two year old. She was boxy. She was correct, but she just wasn't the most feminine looking kid to the point where I had a vet try to tell me that she was a hermaphrodite because she looked too masculine and that we should, you know, she's never going to breed her, just get rid of her. So she's one of those does that I've kind of seen in that line that, you know, I, I will occasionally get that kid that has the pieces, but she's kind of pudgy. She's kind of boxy but she has the right shape to the rib. She has some angularity to her and they kind of almost need to grow out of that. It's like the really awkward, you know, little human kid that finally kind of grows out of the baby weight. It's the same idea, but I still want to see, you know, those parts of dariness, the length of neck and the shape and the openness of rib, especially that you can pretty much see right off the bat in that kid.
2: Yeah. For me, um, I, I agree 100% with grace that, um, mammary system attachments themselves will not necessarily improve. And I know there's going to be somebody that's listening to this right now going, mine, the attachments improved and she got better her second freshening and she got more milk and it looked fuller. It looked fuller because she had more milk. The attachments of the memory system are a physiological, biological component It's like the color of your eyes are a physiological component of your genetics. So, you know, um, sometimes we talk about lateral attachments are, are some of the attachments that specifically hold that mammary system in place. Um, uh, You know, a a group of friends and I, we have, we call it down the leg and it's where the attachments go down the leg already. and And it, you know, really adds to that security of that mammary system. And, Those, in my experience, do not change at all. Even if the productivity fills it up and and makes it appear more well-attached, yes, uh, I've had does that do that as well, but the actual physiological attachments themselves do not change. And so if you have one of those udders that after that three or four-week period, or even with a second freshening, and now they do have a lot more milk. And now you can start to see that a lot more of that milk um, is straining or stressing that that attachment a little bit more because they don't have as much true attachment. Um, Now you can start to see some of those things falling apart a little bit more um, or getting to a position where you go, ooh, that's not like this other dough." And again, I I always compare um, females to the other females in her respective age group on my farm. Um, I do that first so that I can have, you know, no more than hopefully four. Occasionally I've been known to keep five, but usually not more than four in an age group. And then I can whittle from there and get down to kind of my final one or two that those are the two that stay here a long time. Um, But then I'll also compare them, you know, comparatively to the remainder of the herd. And I've been known to have years where I didn't like any of my three-year-olds, you know, by the time they're three or, or maybe they're four. And I say, you're just not cutting the snuff, so to speak, when I've got all these really nice two-year-olds coming on. So I have been known to completely sell a, a an entire age group if they're not quite um, meeting my expectations for what my show string needs to be. Um, but yes, um, one of the traits that I also have been a, a real stickler on the last probably eight or ten years has been rump structure. And what I've noticed is that Certain things with rump structure after freshening can and will improve, such as, you know, the the female body, whether it's human or or animal, when they go through uh, pregnancy and especially as they get ready for freshening, we should all know by this point in time, there's a hormone surge that allows their ligaments to relax, and that's why we can go back and go, oh well. Her tail starting to get soft, but it's not quite there yet. And, and we can start to tell a little bit of, you know, how close she's getting to freshening by how soft those ligaments are getting. Well, the the ligaments softening and loosening up, that allows for more room to, for that actual pelvis to expand and allow the head and the shoulders and the body of those kids to get out. But then shortly after freshening, then what the body physiologically does is it will help to recontract some of those ligaments, and so some of the rump and pelvic structure will change in the first few days after they freshen. But again, once you get to that three to four week point, if you start to see that oh, she's still really high in the dorsal and or low in the thorough, or you know she just doesn't quite have the same pelvic structure or the flatness or levelness. Those are two different things. Flatness is typically described as thorough to thorough levelness is typically described as hip to pin and so if you're not seeing that levelness or flatness at that three to four week mark post freshening it's probably not going to physiologically change any more than that um, and and so again that's when I can look at that particular trait and go ooh your rump just is not going to cut it now that I have you know a herd full of rumps that I'm I'm you know happy with and, and becoming proud of um, so then again that might be a trait that I want to call out regardless of what the mammary system looks like. But what I have found is that the the prettiest mammary systems that I have bred have also correlated to the prettiest rumps that I have bred. And so rump and pelvic structure, because all of those attachments, physiologically, the muscle and ligament structure that attaches the udder to the body wall, it has to attach to something. And so it's sort of like... Um, If you've ever gone to a playground where there were monkey bars or a set of of rings, those rings have to attach to some sort of foundational structure. And so you have to look at, you know, the the cross beams that either the monkey bars or the, the rings are hanging from. That is your rump and pelvis on a goat. And then the monkey bars on the goat are, it's the udder. That's what hangs there. And so there has to be that foundational structure. So those are two of the big areas that I see that, that, um, that can change a little bit, but certain aspects of them that don't change. Um, you know, the, the width of the hips, the width of the pins, I've found that those don't necessarily, the width of the thurls even don't necessarily change that much after they freshen. That's kind of, it is what it is. Um, but the, the flatness or, you know, the, Uh, If they have a little bit of a raised dorsal right immediately after freshening. Yes, I have found that sometimes those improve, sometimes they don't. Uh, Feet and legs only tend to get worse with time and and age. And again, uh, one thing that I'll look at, you know, feet and legs, they can get just a touch soft on those pasterns the last couple weeks of their pregnancy because they are starting to spike those hormones and, and those ligaments, they don't just loosen up the pelvis. And it's the same thing with, with human women. Um, You know, a lot of women, even if they have beautiful arch supports, uh, naturally, naturally formed arches in their feet, They will, after pregnancy or especially after two or more pregnancies, they will start to develop more of a flat-footedness. And it's because those those hormones that fluctuate right before uh, freshening or right before delivering a baby, they don't just, they're, they're not centralized to just the pelvis. They go to all of the ligaments in the body. And so it's the same in goats and the same in any animal the ligaments and tendons in their feet and their hoof structure will soften a little bit. And so I, I watch that very carefully and make sure that it doesn't remain there after they, after they freshen. Um, but if they get just a little bit soft in that month or, or three weeks before they freshen and for a few weeks afterwards, I don't look at that as critically. Cause I know a lot of times that will improve and they'll go back to what they were. Uh, but if they do stay soft and, and you know, poor, or, um, feet structure, then yeah, absolutely. That makes them an easy um, an easy one to
0: drop below my yellow line. Well, talking about udders and general appearance like we just were here, in your guys' opinion, when you're deciding if you want to call a doe or not, and she's got a great mammary but terrible general appearance or vice versa, which do you think is something that you're more liable to keep? Uh, something that you have to fix an utter on or something that you have to fix general appearance. And what do you think is easier to fix? Utters,
2: hands down, utters are easier to fix than general appearance. And I don't even have to think about it because (laughs) um, the, the number of times that I have found a buck that will improve a memory system in one generation, maybe not perfect, maybe not, you know, national bass daughter or anything like that in one generation, but will improve that mammary system that just didn't quite make it into the show string or didn't make it at all. We, you know, it was far off, but the general appearance was there. Um, I, I have a, a family, um, a, a small family that stems back from a, a more considerable family in my herd that I have consistently kept probably four generations now of, the daughter, because the general appearance is consistently strong, and I just keep hoping to, to find, and, and that's the one exception that I haven't quite found the buck to really um, shore up that mammary system exactly what I want. And it, it's a teat size and delineation issue is really the issue. The, the attachments are fine. The capacity is fine. The shape is fine. It's just really about a, a medial and, and teat size, shape, and delineation issue for me. And again, I'm picky about that because I hand milk most of my goats most of the year. Um, and so it, they have to be ideal teats for me. And um, so at any rate, to answer that question, I think that it's way, way, way easier to fix memory system issues than it is general appearance issues.
3: So I've already said that I'm a general appearance freak, so we know the answer. But I think it really, just to echo what Trinity said in her episode, you do need to take into account that you know, if, yes, yeah, she has a beautiful mammary system, but if she has issues in general appearance, like she's steep in the rump or it's the rump structure as far as the thorough placement or it's narrow, you know, very rarely do you get a mammary system that's really good on a doe like that. So again, if you don't, it's the same thing she said, Um, but I think John and Eric at different clinics and everything have taught a lot of us is that you need to have the courage to fit the car. And if you can't fit, a, you know, a truck into a small garage, you know, if you don't have the frame to hold up that mammary system and to make sure it's placed correctly, if she's steep in the rump, you could have issues with it coming forward. Um, you know, and if you don't have the general appearance, that's a doe that's not really going to hold up into maturity either to really get to where she could be with a mammary system like that and that kind of productivity. Um, so definitely general appearance.
1: No, I think of, so the doe I just gave a shot to this morning to make sure that she didn't have a full-term pregnancy and she's retired, but she's fairly young in that retirement. But part of that is her general appearance. It has nothing to do with her mammary system. Her mammary system is very nice. I mean, there's a few things I would like to change if we were being nitpicky, but she has two or three issues that would potentially affect her mobility going forward and giving her another year on the milk stand. I just don't think she could manage it. And so it's the general appearance that ultimately made her no longer a viable option for my breeding herd. And at this point, she's an, I mean, she's an older doe, but And she'll just kind of hang out. I don't necessarily think she has the longevity that I've seen in some of my other does. And there's a few medical things that I'm keeping an eye on with her as well. But um, with that, the initial reason coupled with... I mean, most likely she also has some sort of cancer going on. We haven't diagnosed it, but... My vet seemed, there was an issue, and my vet seems to think she had cancers or has cancer as well, but she's older. We're not going to address that. We're just going to let her live out her life. But that decision to retire her was based on the fact that going into her last year of milking, she just didn't have the mobility to warrant another year of being a breeding productive doe. And that is all that general appearance. She's, um, has a little bit of front end issues and then the back end is getting a little weak. And so those things are affecting her productivity in my herd versus a mammary system where I'm sure if I were to breed her, the mammary system would be beautiful and it would be well attached and all of those things. She'd be productive, but I just can't justify another year because I know it's not going to be a healthy year or even to carry babies to term or things like that. So general appearance definitely does play a part in kind of those decisions as well.
3: I'm going to plug Trinity's again and just kind of echo what she said as far as, you know, there is a domino effect when it comes to type. And especially, you know, I think she used the description, our example of front end could affect, you know, the strength of the chine and the strength across the back. Um, and I'll use a personal example. I um, used or I bought a buck that I waited a long time for. His dam had done very well, um, very popular genetics of the breed. And by the time this buck was three years old, he was so straight on the rear legs, he was starting to go lame. Um, and obviously, that doesn't work with a buck and the importance of rear legs and being able to jump a doe. And it was very evident that this was in just about every single one of his daughters as he straightened up your legs. Um, so, you know, we ship just about everything. And I think I talked about this buck before too, besides a few that I'm kind of trying to salvage and get daughters from to breed back into my line to get that angulation back. Um, but, you know, you have to look at the future of if this animal is having issues with motion before they're even at their prime, you know, he was a three-year-old or even, you know, that four-year-old is maturity, but five to six is where they usually do, The best in the show ring and in production. I mean, you know, if that animal can't make it on the stand, they can't make it to the feed. If you can't put them on the trailer and you're a show herd, you know, what is really the value in that animal or that line? So I think being able to look at those trends, if she, if that your doe is producing that, or if you have a buck like me that's consistently producing that, when you go back to culling, I mean, you have to hold yourself accountable and it sucks. I paid a lot of money for him and You know, that's a lot of genetics lost, and it's really a whole year of that breed. I had to ship just about every one of um, the does because I kept, and this is why you keep animals from more than one sire and more than one doe, It's just about every single animal was out of him, and I just had to make the decision, okay, let's get rid of them because there are better animals, as uh, Kurt said, you know, it's a farm beautification, and there's better animals there that were left once um, him and his daughters went, so it's just again big thing is just holding accountability and being able to look at those things and realize that it's going to cause a major issue down the line if you keep making excuses for it.
2: Mhm. Certain things um are very uh heritable traits and that's what the linear program is meant to be looking at is heritable traits. Um and, and so if you look at some of those heritable traits or those linear traits, why do we score them? It's because we know that there is a higher percentage of transmittability from sire or dam to their offspring. And we specifically look at the linear program, or we should be looking at the linear program as a sire-proving tool. Um, even though I would argue in the United States with dairy goats, we don't have enough offspring from 90% of the bucks to truly call it a sire-proving program. And I know there's going to be people that are mad when I say that. But here's why I say that. Using that with cattle, cattle people will prove out 2000 and $3,000 like it's nothing. Um, and, and they'll sell semen really cheap before they get that you know, 500 or a thousand daughters and, and really start to see what does this buck do or this bull do in, in cattle. And they have the numbers to support their classification system. Whereas most dairy goat bucks, if he's a really good one, he might have 75 or a hundred offspring. And if we talk about, you know, kind of the legacy sires, I'm talking about like the the Frosty Marvin smooth operators in Nubians or um, the Saison in um, Alpines or, um, you know, there's there's a few other big examples of bucks that have been used across the country and in multiple herds and now have hundreds of daughters. Yes, those we can prove what those sires can do. But my my point behind this is um, when we look at certain traits that are heritable traits, if you are actively and consciously culling those out year over year over year. Eventually, what you're going to do is start building a strong enough genetic base that it doesn't matter what outside buck you bring in, he's not going to ruin everything in that family because the strength from the maternal side has now been built in there so many years. And a prime example of that is, for me, when I was young in Oberhasley, the memory systems were a joke. And, and I didn't even start in the 80s when they were really a joke. Um, or even in the 90s when they were still really suspect. I started in the early 2000s. But even then, um, you know, mammary systems were not known for being, you know, outstanding mammary systems. There were, you know, maybe a handful in the breed that you would look at and go, okay, that's an outstanding udder. And not have to qualify it as for an Oberhasli, I I despised that qualification remark from other breeders when I was a young, um, you know, late teens and and into my early twenties, and and so I decided, you know, I'm going to really select for mammary systems in such a way that people cannot say, oh, it's such a good udder for an Ober-Hasley. Um And so I I was specifically looking at mammary systems over and over and over, and culling on mammary systems. And then I started to figure out, okay, you have to have the general appearance component to go with it because it doesn't matter how solid the udder is. If she doesn't have the general appearance to sustain it and to get her moving to and from the feed and to and from the water so that she can convert that energy into milk and fill that mammary system. And she can parade around the ring appropriately. It really doesn't matter how, how nice the mammary system is. And so when i started adding in these these strong traits from general appearance to go with what i was already building in memory system now it started to to pay off even more from both a show and productivity st- standpoint and you know looking at now i i would say that my herd is known for udders Um, and what I would love to see is that my herd is known for their amazing general appearance. And we continue to work on that. That's, that's always a goal for me is constantly trying to improve that. And certainly I I believe that I have does that are, you know, getting close to my ideal type in, in general appearance. But, you know, I, I kind of look at that and go, well, I did a a pretty nice job and, and I'm not trying to brag about it, but I did a nice job of really selecting for those mammary system traits way back 10 15 years ago so much so that now those do, those doe lines those udders are there that I rarely worry about oh I don't know if she's going to freshen very well or not the attachments I'm never really that that concerned about with the occasional one off fluke type things usually it's okay are they going to maintain certain general appearance traits after they freshen are they going to maintain the productivity to do it so I can start looking at and being a little bit more selective in other traits um, but again, you know, the more that you cull with specific traits in mind rather than just culling like this one didn't show as well this year, so she's gone and the judges didn't like this one this year, so she's got like to me, that's that's such a reckless way of culling, um, basing it on what others think or other opinions of your goats or even sometimes the, the linear appraisal program. Just because you have a goat that scores an 83 doesn't mean that she's a bad goat. Doesn't mean that she can't become a 90. Doesn't mean she can't become a 92. Doesn't mean that she won't produce daughters that will be the 90s and 92s that we all want. Um, and so you you really have to be um, culling again, just like breeding. It has to be purposeful, and there has to be a purpose for why you're culling that animal. Um, and that is where you can really take your culling and your breeding
0: program to the next level. Amen to all of that. Holy cow. But you're absolutely right. And I kind of want to pedal back for a second here because we were mentioning uh, bucks here in the beginning of that. And as everybody knows, I have a smaller herd and a lot of people that are listening have smaller herds, right? Some people can't keep 20, 30 milkers and a bunch of daughters. So we have to call hard. But when you're calling hard, when does it get to the point that you're, well, I don't even want to go that way. I think I'm going to keep it with the buck side and how calling hard with a small herd can affect proving out those bucks that are in your herd. I mean, it's pretty hard to do, wouldn't you guys say?
2: I, I think that it is, personally, it's harder to prove a whole lot of anything with smaller herds. Um, and that doesn't mean that small herds can't achieve their goals and that they can't you know, be successful, whether that's in the milk parlor or appraisal or show rings. It just means that it's harder because you have to have an even more discerning eye and you have to have an even more discerning um, purpose for what you're doing. Um, You know, for me, I can freshen eight or 10 first fresheners between yearlings and two-year-olds every year. And then I can kind of wade through that. And that's not even a big group. You know, when you're looking at dairies that are adding, you know, potentially 30 or 40 new first fresheners um, to the mix. And and then they can start selecting out of that, um, you know, eight or 10 is nothing. But, you know, if you're only freshening three first fresheners, your sample size is a lot smaller. So it just comes down to the law of statistics. You know, for me, freshening eight or 10, I, I have a bigger sample size to pull from and a bigger sample size to look at and see what either that new buck is doing and or what my particular doe lines are doing with certain bucks, and so for me that that's how I then also make decisions. I, you know, I talked previously in, in the previous episode about how important it is to call your kids, but it's also important to call your bucks. And for me, I call bucks every other year. Um, occasion, it's rare that a buck makes it to three years old here anymore. Uh, because I have found not for any, you know, poor structure or anything like that, as far as the, the bucks are falling apart. Actually, the bucks are usually, um, quite beautiful and just barely starting to prove themselves out for me, but it's because I want to move on to that next thing. What's the next step. I'm always thinking two or three years ahead. And, you know, if I keep the same buck for six or eight years, even if he's the world's greatest buck, I'm going to eventually run into to problems with the availability of who can I use him on because I'm going to have daughters or granddaughters that now I don't feel comfortable, you know, breeding that tightly. Um, and and so for me, it's always about what's the next step. And I collect all of my bucks when they're babies and yearlings. And so if if he turns out to be the world's greatest buck by the time I start freshening his daughters and other people start freshening daughters well, then I've usually got semen in the tank and I can go back to it and I can pull him back whenever I want. Um, You know, so for me, culling bucks um, is just as important as it is culling your does. But that's what works for me. Again, my breeding style and my breeding philosophies won't work for everybody or everybody's herd. But, you know, again, you know, looking at smaller herds, um, your sample size is smaller to choose from. And, and, Another point kind of along that line, I, I remember kind of mentoring a herd that they were only breeding, um, I, I want to say it was five or six Oberhasley does, and they had three or four Oberhausley bucks. And I thought, you're not going to prove a single thing. You're never going to know what those bucks are doing because you're trying to use all three or four of those bucks every year and you're, you're only getting one or two doughs bred to each buck. And so you're only getting a teeny tiny sample size that you don't know if that was the buck that made that pretty dough kid, or it was the dough side that made that pretty dough kid, or maybe it was just that combination, or maybe it was a fluke. And similarly, it doesn't have to be a pretty one. It could be, you know, poor traits. You don't know, was it the buck's fault? Was it the doe's fault? You never know if you don't build that sample size from it. So, Again, not that smaller herds or boutique herds can't be successful. They absolutely can. It's just a little bit more of an uphill battle because you have a smaller sample size to choose from.
1: I love the term boutique herd. I'm going to have to start using that. That's just, oh, I like it. And I totally agree with what you said. And Reese, a few years ago, I think back and... I made the decision and maybe this will be something that breeders won't necessarily want to sell me a buck for because but my I just can't keep enough animals to really be able to prove out a buck. I sometimes don't even have enough does to do a three for a get of sire and it's just my numbers. I can't keep a bunch and so I have to be realistic. So the value in my herd is on those does, and I bring in the bucks that I want to use. And when I can't use them anymore, or I've seen enough of what they can do, I'll move them on. But part of what I do with that, bearing in mind that I know I'm not going to be keeping a lot of does, is I use them heavily because. And I allow others to use them as well so that this way I can hopefully create enough of a sample that I can know at least for that initial structural evaluations what they're going to do because I've used them on four or five does and then I have a few friends that use them here or there. And so even though my herd is small and those kids aren't going to Um, or I'm not going to keep very many kids in my own breeding program and, you know, age them up. I know enough about what that buck is going to do that he's collected. I can use him again. And I mean, I've even managed enough animals that I've put a sire on the elite list. So it is possible, or sorry, between me and somebody else, we've helped put a sire on the elite list. So it's totally possible to prove them out. But it definitely gets trickier, and I think it's one of those things that you just have to decide, is the buck where you want to focus and building this reputation of this buck and, oh, he did this, that, and the other thing, or is it the reputation of your herd? And that change in mindset helped me decide very quickly, all right, I'm going to bring in and use these bucks that I want to use, but I'm not going to worry about keeping his daughters because... I need enough of a population in my herd to prove him out. I'm going to keep the best does in my herd because I'm going to ultimately, my focus is on that dam line and what I'm putting out. So that mindset definitely helped when it came to, Oh no, we have to prove him out. Or if I sell this doe, this daughter, it's not going to prove him out. And that helped me leaps and bounds. I think what about you?
0: I think that, I I agree with you um, that I shouldn't let you. You you shouldn't have to worry about that. But like Kurt was saying, with a higher uh, sample size, you're going to see more of what that buck's doing, and if it's something that's right for your herd, right? Um, And you know, I personally, I (laughs) breed very few does, Uh, so it's it's really hard to see what the buck's doing. I mean, I used to do driveway breedings to try to get them to uh to see what they're doing in a bigger sample size but at the same token you know three quarters of those use the buck and you never see what those kids look like or uh somebody freshens a daughter but uh good luck trying to get a picture of the utter or anything of the animal so um It's hard to rely on others for that. I don't let it hold me back. I still move my bucks when I can't use them anymore in my herd, uh, which happens within a few years. Admittedly, I've held on to one buck um, longer, but I think it's just the interweaving that I want to do. Grace, what do you feel about this? You've been awfully quiet.
3: Um, I think just going back to what Kurt originally said is, I mean, when we really think about you know, what proving out a sire means in the dairy cattle world, they would be laughing at us. And we're saying, oh, I have two daughters from the same exact dam line. And, you know, he's a proven buck. Um, I think the other thing to take into account, I know we've said, you know, the number of daughters, but I think what is much more important is how many dam lines in the variety of genetics he's actually working on. Because I could have a buck who is doing amazing things for me, and then I let a few people use him driveway breeding that have different genetics and bought in goats and everything. And he's doing horribly, you know, he's breaking back general appearance, there's mammary issues. So, you know, I, I think that's where I love to look at. And again, kind of going back to what Kurt said too, amen to amend everything about appraisal, but When you look at that appraisal data and you know, you're trying to encourage people to be like, Hey, I know you only have a few goats. Why don't you come to my appraisal stop and let's get more data on him? Or if you're a milk tester, you know, offer to be like, Hey, let's can I, you know, let's work on this. I'll come test your goats. So you can try to get more data on that sire. Obviously that's not always possible, but I've been very fortunate just in the last week or two, I've seen several goats who are at least by a sire I owned or have multiple sires I owned on their pedigree. So even if they're not getting out as much as I'd like, they're not on performance programs. Cause let's face it, not every people who are using driveway breeding um, services more frequently probably are just not in a place where they can do that, whether financially or time they have young kids. Um, But I'm able to see, just myself and kind of look over that goat while they're there and talk to them and see what he's actually doing. So even if it's not on file, I'm able to have a more educated um, ability to predict what that buck is doing for other people and what he might do for certain genetics. So, you know, and as much as we'd love to have that all public and everything, so I could go back and look at all his daughters and see, oh, he's actually improving her height or whatever it may be, but I might want to watch you know the four because that trait seems to be going down from where I expected it to be. Um, I think just the actual genetics he's crossed to could all is just as valuable as the number of daughters is. So which is a struggle, and you know a lot of us don't want to sell semen on ducks when they're kids just because we might not have as many straws, or you kind of want to wait and not flood the market when he's a baby and his price is going to be wicked cheap. Um, but trying to get some of that information out there and trying to, you know, do driveway breeding services or, you know, lease him out to somebody, which is not an ideal option. I know a lot of us, I, I don't do that um, just as out of concerns, but at the same time, trying to find different avenues to get his genetics out there fast can help um, with that predictability. And just like da- what Danielle said, you know, I brought in a Nubian buck and an older son and buck, and then we kept an AI kid. Of mine this year, and we use those two bucks that we purchase more than anything. And I usually do that the first year, so I can see across the board. Okay, what is this buck doing when I breed him to more animals? So even if they don't all make it in the registry, they don't have performance data. I'm much, um, much more able to see what he's doing and use that information to breed him for next year. Or if he's throwing a lot of problems, oh, maybe we don't want to keep that buck around and get him collected, and he can move on a little bit faster. Um, <laughs> th- there's no right or wrong way because everyone's situation's a little bit different, but it's just keeping in mind the genetic pools he's in and the number of daughters and just to the more data, the more information, the better, and it's going to help you. And it's going to help um, anybody who uses him or his straws or his daughters in the future.
2: Grace, that is exactly how I use when I bring in outside bucks is um, I kind of go into it, like diving into the deep end of a pool, doing a cannonball, just brace yourself and go for it. Um, and, and so, you know, when I get a new buck, especially if it's a, a completely unrelated buck or a very unrelated buck, um, my goal is to be breeding at least one third of the, of the breeding does, if not half to that new outside buck so that I can, it's still a very, very small sample size comparatively to what, what cattle do. Yes. But at least in my sample size across my herd, you know, I typically average 40 to 45 kids born every year, which again is paltry numbers, even comparatively to, you know, the dairies that we have within our association. Um, But for me, it gives me enough information to go, do I see, you know, out of that 40 or 45 kids, usually 15 will be for each buck Um, because I tend to use three to four bucks. And so I can start to look and go out of those 15 kids, just structurally, because I'm not going to be able to see udders for at least a year, if not two, but structurally. And I look at the buck kids too, because they they play a part as well. You can look at structure there uh, with those buck kids. And we, we all know those stories of breeding a particular doe to a particular buck, and you get beautiful buck kids, but you don't get that doe kid that you want. Those are the ones that I like repeating the breeding, and, and I don't repeat breedings very often. But um, occasionally, I have been known to do it. But then I use that data and go, okay, either this brand new buck he did X Y Z thing. Let's let's say he he widened the the pin bones and the thorough bones consistently on his kids, and you know, just tremendous rumps on them, and that's what I wanted him to do. Okay. A, that first buys him a second year, a second breeding season that now I know, okay, each of the does that needs wider pin bones or wider thorough bones, they're definitely going to get bred to him the second year. Whereas the first year, I just kind of pick a little bit more random. I don't want to say that it's completely willy nilly, but um, it's a little bit more random because I do want to breed him to a couple of the different specific doe lines that I have. Um, so that I can see what he does across um, the different doe lines. And like I said, if I'm not liking what he's doing, then that's a, an easy way, even though he's collected, he can go and and potentially work and, and click just right for somebody else's herd. Um, and, and if I'm really not liking what he's doing, well, then he just goes to the sale barn, and that way he's not perpetuating a, a problem within the breed. Um, but... With that, you know, I'm I'm always moving bucks on. Usually within two years, they they move on, um, because by then, hopefully, I have collected you know semen for at least my own use, if not for for potentially marketing and selling to other people. And I've certainly gotten a, a decent sampling of kids that I want to keep from him. Um, but in tying with that, if you're if you're doing it right and you're you're selecting those traits right, an example of of you know how you can move on bucks very quickly yet still have a competitive herd is last year I counted it up. I didn't, I didn't do it for this year, 2022, but 2021 I exhibited 22 Oberhasley at the national show. And that represented including kids that I had, you know, multiple kids from the same sire. I had 13 different sires represented out of those 22 goats in that breed. And, you know, that was across all ages because what I do is, you know, I, I move those bucks on, but then I also start looking at and go, okay, this particular buck worked really well with this family across a couple different breedings. Now I'm going to go try to find either his son, his sire, his half brother. If he has a twin brother, I might even try that. That way it's just, it's basically the same genetics, but it's the same way that, you know, full siblings can have different interests or different athletic abilities or music abilities or academic abilities. You know, you might get something just a little bit different from that twin brother. And, you know, so for me, I try to go back into that same family and know that, all right, this particular genetic base works really well with this family. So I can dip back into that same genetic pool, but go a little bit different and throw it on the same dough line and probably mitigate the amount of risks that I'm taking Um, so sometimes I call that like swinging for a, for a, for a single or a double as if we use like a baseball or softball, um, analogy, you know, those where I'm not really going outside of the realm of, of one buck that I've already used that I know is kind of a, it's a safe bet. So to speak, I'll stay in that safe ones where I'm just trying to get on base, so to speak versus, especially with my younger does, those are the ones where I, I figure they're going to be here a few more years, and I've got more time with them comparatively to you know four plus year olds um, that maybe I have a, a few less years of breeding that I want to I want to make sure that I get it right on those. Whereas with the younger does, I call it more like swinging for the fence. Like let's just try it and see what happens. Let's let's get wild and crazy and you know do those tighter breedings or um, uh, either a tighter breeding that I've never done or. A, a more open, complete outside breeding that I've never done and, and might as well try with your young ones. And you know, then you can start to see what, what being creative can be.
1: I love that. And now I want to switch gears slightly because as we've talked about throughout last week's episode and this week's episode, we're all pretty much at our max in our barn. And so when we're culling we're culling because our number, more or less, we're culling because our numbers have been reached. But what would your advice be for someone who is still growing their herd? They're starting out and they're in a, they're a few years in and they can double their herd before they really have to make cuts based on numbers. Um, Should you cull along the way towards your ideal size or do you grow to the size and then start culling heavily? What are your thoughts for someone who is growing their herd still, but wants to have that competitive herd?
3: What do you guys think? Um, I would keep in mind when I tell people, because there's always that, you know, family, well, little Timmy didn't have a doe kid, so we're going to go buy him something. And I, I remind them, like, there's always going to be more goats you want to keep down the road. So you might as well keep more space open and make, You know, if you have an obviously weak end of the line, why don't you get rid of those weaker does? You're going to have more space in your barn. You're exactly what Kurt said last time is you're going to have less hooves to trim. And, you know, your animals are going to be better for it because you don't have as much um, crowding. Even if you have more space, they're going to be happier. They can spread out more. There's more food to go around. Your feed bill is lower. So, I mean, I, I think you can really cut the herd any time. And it's just that even if you instead of more of a, you know, 20 or 25 to 30% of your herd, why don't you look at that bottom 10 if you don't have as much of a necessity to do it? Because there's always a goat or two in the barn that we're, you know, kind of in the back of our head making excuses for um, when you don't really have to be getting rid of goats. That it's like, well, maybe, you know, she's going to go do better in another herd and she's going to make more of a difference. Or if she's just not worth it, you know, but. Like we're fortunate in our area, you know, when we talk about cutting goats, I have some that it's, you know, she's just, she's a lovely doe is one I have in the back of my mind that's going to go after this year, but she's going to do a whole lot better for a backyard situation or a dairy because she is more of a production doe and I just don't have a need for her. So that's kind of the goat in a group that I don't really need to be cutting down. She's kind of the one that's like, well, you know, let's make my decisions easier down the road and just move an extra couple on now.
2: I, I would agree with that grace. And if I can piggyback off of that just a little bit. So the, the way that I would say is if you have the room, keep the room while you've got it. Um, And if you are just keeping animals purely to grow your numbers, then you're not keeping them for the right reasons. And again, if if you get nothing else out of maybe at least my points is there has to be a purpose. What is the purpose? And if the purpose is simply because, well, it's cheap to keep my own kids and I just want to grow my numbers, that's not the right purpose as far as leading towards the goals that you eventually want. And so you know if you are keeping six or eight kids that you know are not maintaining the the traits or the qualities that you eventually want down the road in your herd and then you're trying to breed off of those six or eight kids the next year or two and then you're keeping their kids because you're just trying to grow your numbers so to speak um, you're not really selecting for anything other than a number you're 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 looking at quantitative, not qualitative. And so if you're just looking for for milk volume and they're productive, sure, go for it. Why not? You're you're going to get productivity and a lot of volume a lot faster that way. But if you're looking for actual structural traits and you're looking for actual, you know, quality of the mammary systems along with the milk that goes with that, I would say that you need to be more discerning and more um, purposeful with why you're keeping what you're keeping, even if that means, well, hey, we know we can we can bump up to 15 this year, but but to get to 15 means we have to keep these three that aren't really exactly what we want. Well, then don't keep those three because there will be three more born next year, and or your buddy down the road or your buddy across the country is going to have three more born in their herd that you could maybe bring that into your herd and up the level of your herd. And they they reproduce very quickly, you know. Um, we could probably all sit here and go, Well, I started with two or three and now I'm magically up to thirty-nine. And that's I would have way more than that if I allowed myself to keep the sentimental ones and, and had the the room and the space and the time and the energy and the money to do it. But you know, all of those things become limiting factors, but You know, goats, if if you give them, you know, a year or two, you can double or triple your herd size very quickly. And so you should double or triple your herd size with the animals and the traits that you actually specifically purposefully want rather than just keeping it just because.
3: I think the other thing to keep in mind is if you ever feel like you don't have enough goats, feel free to look at your feed bill and to sit down and really do the math of how much it costs to feed per goat. Um, Because I I feel like that definitely helps make the decision to um, not keep an extra goat or two that you could let go for the winter. Um, And the other thing is, I always hear the excuse that, well, we need a goat for this class. And I don't, I think it's partially that I live in a part of the country where premiums are not good at the few shows we have premiums at. So again, it's really, it's very eye opening whether you have a 4 H'er who has to do a record book or Um, you just want to kill 20 minutes to sit down and do the math of, okay, I win $4 at these three different shows. Is that really going to outweigh the fact that I didn't need that extra May kid or that extra dough kid just to have an entry in that class?
0: I think that was perfectly said. I don't even have to add anything to any of that. This is, this is great. I want to end this episode with something that, I've thought about for myself, but I'm sure others have as well. Uh, When does it cross the line where you're cutting off your nose to spite your face? When, when is it a, Oh crap. I called too hard.
1: I'll answer that really quick. It's when you're about a dough. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. You're going to have to (laughs) bleep me out.
3: It's when you're Mm -hmm.
1: complaining about a dough and Wanting to sell her because you're complaining about her and not realizing that she has an impact on your herd and is probably one of the strongest
3: does in your barn. But and I'll you let, let everybody listen, else speak too. But you won't just listen to your friends, you know, who are I feel
0: personally to- attacked. You should be. Shots Ooh. fired, Danielle. Shots fired. <laughs> I will I let you do know. What I can. I will let you know that while I have been listening intently, I have also been thinking about my herd and ranking my herd as we you know Kurt talked about uh last episode here uh and I'll tell you right now she's on the top of my list, unfortunately, so there, but back to the Grace. question
3: Wait, Grace, Danielle. do you wanna say it do
1: you wanna say it or do you wanna do you want me to say it? You can say it.
0: Is it,
3: wait, right. wait, wait,
2: can I, oh, oh I was going to guess, is that, is it every woman's favorite four words to say?
3: <laughs> I that?
2: was right. Oh,
1: I was. That's, that's three.
2: No, no, I'm sorry. I told you so. <laughs> I told you so.
1: Three
3: like, and no, four. Correct. Yes. We knew we were right all along, but apparently Kurt is the only one he listens to. So <laughs> okay, what was the question?
0: When does somebody have a Merrimack situation where they're calling too hard uh, despite their face? So when, when is it too much?
3: Oh, well, in your case, it's when you let your emotions and other things get ahead of reason and reasons to actually keep our call a goat. Um, But now Mm. in all seriousness, um, (laughs) so pretty much you kind of have to sit down and really Look at the genetics, and I think if you have a small herd, you can't pick. Well, I want to keep this line going. Where in my case, you know, I can have that extra one doe that I cut that damn line down to to be like, well, this is the one I want to keep going because maybe it's not the one that's going to do the best in the show ring, but I see a lot of value in it. Where in your case, you're going to have to be, you know, much more selective, and I only have this many spots in my barn. And the biggest right. thing I've always learned is whenever I've questioned if I need to cull a goat, I always get rid of them in the long run. And as I said last time, once they're gone, you are not going to miss them because you will have plenty of other things to be dealing with and hopes to trim. And like right now, vaccines and supplements to give before kidding season. And, you know, it's, I, I think, I don't know if he said on air, like Kurt said before, I think it's very important to make sure you're setting aside, you know, time for yourself besides goats. And if it's getting to the point where, you know, you're so overwhelmed about this and, you know, it's, it's becoming an issue and it's overwhelming, you, you need to, you know, say, okay, well, maybe I do need to kind of go more into my middle of the line and see which of these does need to move on now. Um, so I can set time aside to do other things and I can give my animals that I've left the best there.
2: I think when, when do you know that you're culling too hard um, <clears throat> is when your herd is never really growing or fluctuating in size or potentially decreasing in size, yet you're your end goal or the end look that you want to see is not being realized or not being achieved, then you're maybe culling too hard and you're culling the ones that you actually should have been keeping and giving a little bit more grace and a little bit more of a free pass to for a year or two. Um, And I think that, again, it comes back to why are you calling this animal? What is the exact purpose for why you're calling her? And what is the exact purpose for keeping a different one? Um, and you know, I think that when you can step back and look at things, kind of looking at the big picture rather than think think of a jigsaw puzzle, you know, a 500 piece puzzle. If you just look at one of those pieces, It's not going to tell you much about the picture, you know, but when you put all of the pieces together and all of the information together, so to speak, now you can look at and realize the whole big picture and what's really happening within your herd or happening within the dynamics of, you know, keeping a buck or selling a buck, keeping a doe or selling a doe, keeping their kids or knowing when to move them on, um, So there is a lot of information that that has to go into that decision. But if you are constantly culling goats, but not seeing any of the benefits, meaning, you know, if if you're culling goats because you want to improve productivity and you're not seeing those overall numbers and you can't just go on necessarily barn records unless you know that you are being truly judicious with those barn records, um, so looking at it, that's, that's why I decided to join milk test is because I wanted to be able to look from year over year, over year and generation over generation to see, am I making the right decisions from a productivity standpoint? And then similarly, whether that's linear appraisal or the show ring, whichever way you use to evaluate the structural traits, uh, whether that be on a linear scale or whether that be on a comparative scale in the show ring, if you are not, making the improvements that you know you set out to make three or four years ago or even two years ago, and you're not hearing the judge say, oh, well, you, you did better in rump, or you're not hearing their praiser say, oh, you scored better in, in feet and legs, um, then you're probably culling too hard or culling for the wrong reasons.
3: I think what helps too, and it's just write physically, write out your goals of, okay, this is my long-term goal of where I expect my herd to be. These are my short-term goals. And, um, I think what's kind of been said to me too, and put better is, you know, you really need to have the goals behind your breeding. Um, which I think a lot of us have, and I always have, you don't, there's a lot of people again, like we were kind of talking about earlier who just, start, you know, they breed goats or they they don't really know exactly what they're doing. They found a fancy buck kid out of a doe they liked and, but they're just breeding them blindly without saying, okay, these are my expectations for that cross. Um, And sometimes like I have a buck I'm using right now that it's like, okay, these are my ideal goal for this breeding is really mammary system. So I might not be able to see it for longer term, but I could also say, I know he's maybe not quite as strong in this so, I need to keep that in mind when going through kids that I don't bring my top lines or my rumps or whatever it may be back a generation by using him. Um, so, kind of before you even have kids on the ground, you see them. Because I know everybody, me having a lot of moon spots, don't understand why I might not sell all of my moon spotted bucks intact um, because they're so pretty and whatnot. But it's understanding <laughs> that he didn't fit the picture of what I wanted and he didn't fit the standard for that year and my goals. So, and that bar should always be changing a little bit in those expectations.
0: Like it was said earlier in this episode, it really is a work of art. It's something that, uh, if you want to improve your herd, you should practice um, and and be thoughtful about it. Like Kurt was saying as well, um, don't be afraid to lean on some breeder friends. I know all three of you. I've leaned on in the past for just you know reassurance that I'm I'm doing. What I think is right, right or wrong, you know. So it's it's a work of art. You got to look at it and say, "Okay, I like it, Picasso," and be done with it.
2: John, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just interject really quickly because you made a really good point. I don't do this by myself. I mean, I do the work by myself, day in, day out. But I don't call one hundred percent by myself. Yes, I have the final say but I have different groups of friends that I'll say, Hey, I'm kind of on the fence with this one. Here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I like. What do you think? Right. And more often than not, they tell me just sell it. You won't miss it. If you're questioning it, just sell it. But occasionally they'll say, why are you thinking about selling that one? Or why are you thinking about bringing that in? Like what, what do you see in that, that we're not seeing And specifically friends that do not raise the same breed as me, they can look at it with a completely discerning eye. And so Mm -hmm. again, find yourself a mentor or a group of friends um, within the the industry that you can use that maybe they can be your sounding board and, and kind of the ones to back you off the ledge from selling a doe that you're breeding on December 15th. (laughs) And, um, you know, maybe be the voice of reason to kind of help you through, you know, some of the frustrations that goats can inevitably cause us.
0: I think that's wonderful. Guys, just so you're aware, you're tied at six episodes each right now. So we'll have to uh, figure out some kind of battleground for you guys to fight it out to the death.
3: Is that going to be the quiz bowl that I texted you the other night?
0: (laughs) Yes, that was an excellent idea. A uh, dairy goat quiz bowl for Kurt and Grace to oh, boy. I hash it out oh boy
1: <laughs> this could get tough this could get really competitive really soon
0: Well, I call um, being Vanna White <laughs> um, you know I'm,
2: I'm sure that Grace is very similar to me in being very studious so give me the date and I'll start studying and <laughs> I'll have my finger ready for the buzzer
3: <laughs> See, I let's told get through the new
0: year first huh
3: I told him this was his opportunity because they didn't tell us and it could have just been a you know off the cuff oh here we are <laughs> <laughs> Who was
1: the 2010 national champion? No, I'm just
3: kidding.
2: wait. Finish that. Come on. Yeah, yeah. What breed? What breed?
1: Let's. i shoot for the Lamanchas. 2010 national champion Lamancha.
2: Um, Castamere's Evian. On, no, 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 no. <laughs> Autumn Acres, uh, Miss Maple Sugar.
3: It's, yeah, it's, it's maple sugar. Evian,
0: Evian was 2008.
3: Where was it in 2010?
0: So I know he's not cheating.
3: Where was it in 2010? I'm trying to remember.
0: Louisville. And who was the ADGA president? <laughs> in 2010? <laughs> yeah. know,
1: and what were you not wearing, not wearing
0: when? You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have
2: to do some digging then, but...
1: No, but thank you both for know, Who was
0: it? We gotta know!
1: Oh no, we can. Here's what we do. Listeners, if you know who was the 2010 president, let us know.
0: That's amazing. I, yeah, that's uh, quiz bowl going to happen. This is amazing. Okay. Well,
1: <laughs> we are so grateful to have you both on. And I am so happy that you both agreed to do a part two. I was mm-hmm. thinking about this and just where we were able to go in digging a little deeper, asking follow up questions, and just truly almost Joe Roganing this topic and not maybe not putting together a four hour episode, but you know, the two of them together are pretty close to four hours. And we're just so grateful that you both took the time to be with us and to discuss this topic with us.
2: Oh, no problem. Again, it was, it was my pleasure. And and thanks again for inviting me to be on and um, to subject your listeners to my um, thoughts and, and ideas. Once again,
0: I have to ask the question, even though this is your guys' sixth appearance, Grace, where can the listeners find more about you and your goats?
3: Um, So my website is hopsandlopsfarm.com. I also have a Facebook page for that on, um, well, obviously Facebook and Instagram. And then, of course, Michael's got the goat, as Grace has too many goats, since we have to plug him in here all the time.
2: Uh, Well, you can find my very outdated website at www.overboard.com, and that is O-B-E-R-B-O-E-R-D.com. Or the, the more um, applicable uh, place to see more updated uh, pictures and information is on the Facebook
0: page, Overboard Dairy Goats. And hey, Danielle, we, we also have our own socials, don't we?
1: Oh, we certainly do. So you can find us on Facebook by searching Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast. We are on Instagram at ringside underscore go underscore podcast. And of course, you can find us on TikTok by searching ringside podcast. And so be sure to like, follow, or whatever the action is on the appropriate social media. <laughs> we love to hear from you as well. Be sure to comment. We also have our website, DairyGoatPodcast.com, where we have a bunch of fun merch and we're working on some new merch that'll probably be live in the new year, but we'll be sure to keep you updated about all of that. And then as always, be sure to rate us, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and we appreciate all the feedback and the ratings that you give. It helps us a lot. So if you don't mind, take a second, give us a review, um, give us a rating. We appreciate it.
0: Thank you everybody for taking the time to listen again. Thank you to the gray goat visit www.graygoatbbq.com. Use the code ringside 10 to get 10% off today. Thanks again to them. And everybody, this has been Ringside, an American Dairy Goat Podcast. I'm John.
1: And I'm Danielle.
0: We'll catch you on the next one. Ringside, an American Dairy Goat Podcast, is not an affiliate of the American Dairy Goat Association. All opinions or information regarding the ADGA does not represent the registry.